so good to see everyone here at public meeting. A couple of little quick things just before we get underway and think about this particular passage of scripture. The first is, really glad to see you all here on Wednesday. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that we're fairly lopsided, just there's lots of people sitting on this side of the room and not many people sitting on this side of the room. And it's not that I'm into equality and we have to have the same number of people and genders and everything like sitting on either side of the aisle. But just a little word for Wednesday, right? Given that this is often the way people come in if they're running a little bit late, which is fine because you come in from the other side of campus. If you sort of get here reasonably on time, maybe next week, do you want to, well not next week, I'll talk about that in a minute. Do you want to sit on this side of the lecture theatre? Because then it's easier for people just to come in if they're a bit late. Is that all right? And remember, the, what was the four things we talked about in week one? I'd even forgotten, so I had to write it down. As you're walking out of the public meeting, what do you do? You pray, you sit, you... Nice! So I remember, pray, sit, speak, and then suggest. Okay, so keep doing that. Keep sitting together, good to be part of the community. However, for next week, because the strike is on, it's just, it's just a disruption, right? And you will know this, it's a disruption for you if you were affected by the strike a couple of weeks ago because your classes had to go online and you couldn't get in, or you maybe tried to brave the picket line and it was a little bit of an experience, right? So next week, what we're doing is we're redoing what we did on Thursday last week, or Thursday the week before when the strike was on. Uh, Barney's Anglican Church has very graciously allowed us to use their space. No charge to the EU, which is really great. They gave us access to their Wi-Fi, which means you can then watch your classes online. And a lot of students, there are about, I guess, 70 students maybe on Thursday last week who came in and made a day for it. They came in for their sort of, you know, 10 o'clock Zoom class and they, we had a room where people were just sitting listening to class and on Zoom and things like that. And then we ran small groups together in some of the rooms and we did public meetings. So if you want to, can I encourage you to make the commitment for next Wednesday to come in for public meeting? Come in for the day, make a day of it. And, um, you can bring your lunch, or you can go out and buy lunch, you can hang out with the viewers. It's just a great day to keep doing stuff in person. So that's the last thing, shameless plug, because this is my last week speaking at public meetings. Uh, if you're wondering whether or not Ancon is worth coming to, then can I just give you my like two-second plug? Right? Now, knowing a little bit about your generation, let, let's still do a show of hands. Put your hand up if you've decided to book tickets for a concert more than three months in advance. Anyone? Just honestly? Seriously, none of you are going to pink next year, right? <laughs> Harry Styles. But seriously? And the reason why you do this is because you think it's actually worth it. The reason why you do it is you think that it's worth investing the money now up front because the product in 3, 6, 12 or 15 months is going to be worth it, right? Even though, half-jokingly, the Lord might come back between now and then, right? Might, the end of the world might start and you'll miss the concert, right? You still think it's going to be worth it, right? We're not going to discuss that theologically. That's why you should come to any conference, right? Because an annual conference... Helps you appreciate theologically how do I live well in the light of the end, the Lord, the return of the Lord. Can I, so can I say, annual conference is a great thing for you not to miss out on. I'm not going to claim it's the best conference in the world because I haven't been to all the conferences in the world, so I can't make an objective judgment. Right? As a uni student, because you know that being involved in student ministry happens at a unique time in your life, annual conference, a unique opportunity that you will not get again once you've left uni. So make the most of it. It's five days. Sure, it's costly. It costs money. Over 400 bucks. But if you commit to coming now and then realise that you've got three or four months to now start putting some money aside and pay for it, I think that cost will be more than able to be borne. If not, talk to the Ancon team or talk to your staff workers and there's some financial provisions that are available. It's costly because when you get there, you might be in a space with lots of other people and you might not have been to a five-day residential conference and you're just not sure how you're going to cope. It's costly because you have to eat the food the conference centre provides, not the food mum's been making for your time, right? But I'll tell you what, the food at Katoomba is actually really very good. No disrespect to your parents, mother particularly, who might make food, right? Or your father, I do lots of the cooking at my house, so anyway. 
But I think what I'm saying here is, sure, it's a bit costly, but the opportunity to be in community with others who you've made friends with this year, particularly through first year, the opportunity to be sitting under the word of God for five days will be more than worth it. Now, please don't hear me say that it will be an easy experience. I think it will be a great experience, but it will be challenging for you. The talks go for longer than public meeting talks, so that will stretch you. There will be parts of the Bible that you'll have to wrestle with that you haven't wrestled with before, and that will affect how you now view the world. That's going to be a bit of a challenge for you, but in the end, that's going to be a good thing. Sometimes people have challenging experiences at annual conference, just putting it out there, right? But in the end, the overwhelming experience for most of the people is it was actually really worth it. I grew lots as an individual, but particularly I grew heaps in my love and understanding of the Lord Jesus. So that's my endorsement. Come to annual conference. God willing, I'll be there. Unless he returns, in which case we won't be running. But that's right. I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into this text in there. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to give us once again to be able to gather here today on campus to be reading and studying your word. We do pray, please, Father, you'd be with us and help us to rightly understand them. We pray those things in your name. Amen. Uh, today, I want to, in the last of our series on success and ambition, try and explore this question about whether or not religious people can be successful. Now, when I ask that question, or when I pose the question, you might interpret it in a couple of different ways. Firstly, if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you've not really hung around church or Christian circles, then again, a very warm welcome. We're really glad that you keep coming, and keep listening to what the Bible says, and then hopefully asking your friend, who may be a Christian, or hopefully is a Christian, questions about the passage that we're looking at and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if you're here today and you're not a believer or you're not hung around Christian circles, you might think it's quite an unusual question because your perception of the people of faith is one that often leads you to the trajectory that says, surely the more religious people are, the more successful they are. The more obedient they are to God, surely God will be better pleased with them. And particularly as an outsider looking in, it does appear that religion often asks or sometimes demands more and more and more and more and more. So surely that means they're being more successful in their practice of religion. So for you, it might be a little bit of a strange question. The answer might be, well, of course religious people are successful. Now, I'm sure that many of us here today are Christians and involved in some sort of church or um, you know, parachurch ministry, like being involved in the EU or crew or scripture union or youth works or beach missions or things like that. And we've, been, we've seen and experienced then a range of what it means for us to be religious. So when we ask the question, can religious people be successful, we might understand the question slightly differently. See, one of the things that we observe is that we don't often need to go too far to understand that, make sure that works, we don't have to go too far to know that some churches appear to be very successful. They're growing churches, they're large churches, you know, you often know the story, I started this church with a group of six people in my garage and my family room. And we moved from the family room to the garage and then we moved to the local school hall and now we're in a 10,000 seat auditorium and 8,000 people come every week. Right? That's often the story that we're told. So it sure looks like the religious thing is working out well for them. Churches are large and growing. But at the same time, you don't have to go too far to see that there are often churches or church leaders that used to be big but are now actually very small. There are church leaders who appear to be doing really, really well. They appear to be very successful and yet they're now no longer leading churches or involved in Christian ministry. So maybe it's not so easy for religious people to be successful. Now for some of us, we're actively involved in what I would call a ministry position. We're involved in leading Sunday school. It's a recognised position of responsibility 
you might be assistant small group leading in the EU or senior leading, you might be on the EU specialist team and shout out to the team of students and staff who are organising annual conference. Just a reminder, register now. And sometimes in our experience of being in ministry, we wonder what it looks like for us to be successful in that particular role and responsibility. So the question I want to address is, can religious people be successful? I think sometimes we buy into a line, if you remember, I've suggested that week to week we sort of buy into a particular line, Jesus corrects that with a truth about our topic for the day. And I think the line that we buy into goes something like this. My Christian life will be more successful the more religious I am. God will be more pleased with me the more I do for him. I think that's the lie that we often buy into. See, because on occasion when we just pause and we consider our own Christian life and how we think we're travelling, I think instead of going to the position that says, actually I'm doing really well at following Jesus, I think most of us default to, actually I'm not really doing very well at following Jesus. And then sometimes the feelings of inadequacy and failure kick in, and the thought pops into our mind that says, I wonder what it would actually take in my own life, in my own experience, in my own habits and practices, to actually live the way the Bible teaches me to live. And we do wonder whether or not this is possible. And so the best way to wonder whether or not this is your experience is just reflect on the last couple of days or the last week or since you started uni or since you left school or however long it's going to be. And I suspect at, in certain seasons of that life, you'll just go, yeah, actually, I've just not done as well as I thought. I've tried to do religious things, read the Bible, say my prayers, go to church, but I think I fell asleep during the sermon two weeks ago. I really didn't read the Bible every day, and even then I was on the train, I just don't really remember reading, but I sort of read it anyway. I ticked the box on the Bible reading app just to sort of say that I'd done it, do you know what I mean? I haven't really prayed for my siblings, but I don't like them anyway, so I think God will forgive me in that. And I, I prayed for mum and dad, like, you see how it doesn't take us much to realise that we actually fall short even of our own expectations? And then sometimes as we start looking around the room, figuratively, not literally, right, we wonder if maybe everyone else is just much better at being a Christian than me. Because they seem to know more of their Bible. They clearly feel more comfortable praying in the small group that I'm in. They ask much better questions than anyone questions. Like, I could never ask. I don't even think about it. And they've volunteered for heaps more ministry. So maybe they're just being more successful in the Christian world than me. Now the danger here, when we buy into this particular lie, which is reflected in some of the things I was just saying, is that as we start comparing our salvation efforts to others, we invariably find ourselves falling short. And it's not that hard to find someone who's clearly more godly than me, at least from outward appearances. So this is where we go wrong, right? Firstly, if we look to others to see how we're going at being Christian, in doing so, we're passing a judgment on what we see of them. And sadly, we find that really easy to do, particularly if we're well-connected into Christian community. You might be struggling to lead your Year 9 and 10 boys at youth group on Friday night. And boys in the room, you've all been there, and so we know what sort of rat bags Year 9 and 10 boys are at youth group on Friday night. And you just happen to be scrolling through Instagram at some of the other local churches who you follow at youth group. And you look at the activities they do for the you know, 9 and 10 boys and they're always smiling and they're happy and they haven't destroyed the building, right? <laughs> Clearly, they're doing a much better job than I am. How do I get what they've got? Do you see the danger? As soon as we start comparing, that's where our thought processes go. Secondly, I think sometimes 
when we think that our own efforts will start to merit our salvation, or we think God will be more pleased with me the more we do, we seek to try harder. And this is partly a reaction, I think, to seeing others appearing better than ourselves. We just think that the antidote is, well, I've just got to do better. I have to try harder. And if you're here and you're a perfectionist or you have perfectionist tendencies, then this can often just be the default response. I haven't hit the benchmark, so I've just, I've just got to try harder until I can actually get there. Interestingly, in both of these cases, I think that our reaction to feeling less than we think we should often involves actions and activities that are inherently or essentially religious in nature. Things that, when undertaken appropriately, are good things and right things in our reflection of relationship with God. See, religious activities in and of themselves are really good things. We'll talk a bit more about this later on in the talk. Sitting, spending your time reading the Bible, listening to God speak to you through his word. Spending time praying, articulating your relationship with your heavenly Father. Attending church and being an encouragement and encouraging others in fellowship and in their walk with Jesus. Offering words of comfort and encouragement from the scriptures to others. All of these things are really, really great things. But when we turn these good and right and proper activities into the means of either appeasing our guilty conscience, because we feel like we're just not doing enough, we're not successful, or we turn these activities into the means to try and earn more favour with God, we've taken these really good things and have now misused them. So one of the things that we find here is, well, let's hear what Jesus says. So I think this is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 7. Got the passage open in front of us. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I've read this passage heaps and heaps and heaps of times trying to prepare this talk, right? And the conclusion I've come to is that Jesus here seems fairly clear. I can't spin this passage in any other way. Not that I'm trying to, I just think Jesus is really clear. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Prophesying in the name of Jesus, not enough. Casting out demons, not enough. Doing mighty works, not enough. Even more than that, though, even if you've done some or all of these, Jesus will still send you away with the words, I never knew you. And more than that, you get branded as a worker of lawlessness. That's the label you then carry. But surely those who can do or have done these things, confessing Jesus as Lord, prophesying in his name, casting out demons, doing mighty works, surely these are the ones, surely these are the people who Jesus will welcome with open arms into his kingdom on Just when you look at these four verses, it surely doesn't look like it. I want to suggest that if you've bought into the lie that my Christian life will be more successful the more religious I am, and God will be more pleased with me the more things I do for him, then I think this is the outcome that Jesus is talking about. Depart from workers of lawlessness. So what's the correction that we need to hear, particularly from this passage? Well, here's what I want to suggest is the correction, the truth that we need to hear on Jesus' lips. Success in the Christian life 
is being known by Jesus, knowing Jesus, and doing the will of God. The correction I think we need to hear is that rather than thinking that our religious activities make us more successful before God, we need to be reminded that entry into the kingdom is not dependent upon our own actions. Even the religious ones that we might undertake prior to conversion or after conversion. So do you see here very clearly what Jesus says both in verse 21 and verse 23? Just pulling those two verses out of the passage that we just read. Who is it who enters the kingdom of heaven? It's not those who undertake religious observance. Not those who do religious actions, but rather those there in verse 21 who have done the will of my Father in heaven, says Jesus. Notice again there in verse 23. Those who are known by him. It seems like entry into the kingdom is not based on your religious activities or your religious actions. It's based on doing the will of God and being known by Jesus. So what then does it mean to do the will of God and being known by Jesus? We could spend a whole annual conference topic on this. And I don't have time to do that today. I haven't prepped it for it either. So we're not going to do that. Maybe one year in the future we'll talk about that. What I want to try and do now is just restrict our conversation briefly to Matthew's Gospel. Because I'm trying to stick over the talks within Matthew's Gospel. There are lots of other places you can go to to work out across the course of the New Testament what it means to do the will of God. 1 Thessalonians is really helpful where Paul will say, what is the will of God for your life? question that every uni student at one point asks before they leave uni, what is God's will for my life? Go and read 1 Thessalonians and Paul will say, well, you should go and read it anyway, but Paul's answer is your sanctification. Paul says God's will for your life in that context is growing to become more like Jesus. Here in Matthew's Gospel, one of the things that we start to see as Jesus engages with the religious leaders of the day, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest of all of the commandments? And down in Matthew chapter 22, this is the reply that Jesus gives the Pharisees. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now what does it mean to do the will of God and be known by God in the context of Matthew's Gospel? One of the things I want to suggest to you is that Matthew's writing particularly to a Jewish audience and the dominant theme of Matthew's Gospel is looking through the lens of kingship. What does it mean for Jesus to come and bring in the kingdom of God? So I take it that in light of Jesus' arrival as Messiah, the promised coming king, who will then become Lord, he comes to usher into the kingdom. What does it then mean to do the will of God? I think it's to love God and love neighbour, actually. So what then of the religious actions? What of confessing that Jesus is Lord, prophesying his name, casting out demons and doing mighty works? Well, Jesus himself is not opposed to these things. Read through Matthew's Gospel and he does all of these things. And his disciples do them as well, interestingly. Empowered by the Spirit, I take it. However, Jesus is saying that these things, in and of themselves, are not the means of being declared righteous by God. What God requires is the inward transformation of the heart. And we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks. That inward transformation, that means you know Jesus and seek to rightly love God and love neighbour. And if you want to know who your neighbour is, go and read the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
We've been seeing through Matthew's Gospel that this heart transformation is only made possible in Jesus dying, rising again, and pouring out his spirit. Our heart of stone being taken away, our heart of flesh being put in, and our heart then empowered by the spirit of God, meaning that we can live in a way that pleases God and seeks to love neighbour. I take it that one of the outworkings of this newly established relationship that people have with God is a changed heart and, yes, the undertaking of religious activities as an expression of thankfulness and service towards God and also towards others. It's worth also looking at when we look at this particular passage about Jesus and he talks to the workers of lawlessness in its broader context. So if you've got your Bibles there, just go back to Matthew chapter 7. And a little bit earlier, in fact, just in the previous paragraph, this is what Jesus talks about. Because I think this helps also add the context as to why Jesus says what he says. So you notice what Jesus says here in chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus warns people, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Then he goes on and gives the illustration about the fruit. So Jesus is warning here, fairly similar to Matthew 12, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He's saying, be cautious of judging only by outward appearances. Outwardly, these false prophets appear as though they're sheep. They appear as though they're following the good shepherd. They appear as though they're going to be teachers of the flock. But the warning here is that they are not. And you will know whether or not they are or they aren't by the fruit of that their life and teaching brings. Now, they may outwardly confess that Jesus is Lord. They may even appear to be casting out demons and doing mighty works. But if they're false prophets, they stand condemned, and no matter how many of these things they have done, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you are workers of lawlessness. They are not welcome in the kingdom. The first question I want to ask here is, do you see the world the way Jesus sees the world? Is this the way in which you understand religious practices and habits, religious observances? Do you have Jesus' worldview? I think one of the warnings for us here is let's not measure the success of our own Christian life, churches, ministries, and individuals who undertake these things purely by how they appear. For Jesus is the only one who knows the heart. It's not the way Jesus measures success, just looking at outward appearances. Rather, he directs us to know him, to be known by him, and to seek to please his Father in heaven. So in response to Matthew 7, I want to pose three questions that I think actually help us sort of engage in this particular passage, particularly with regard to what it means to be successful in the practice of religion. Firstly, have you understood the place of religious practice in the life of the believer? See, remember that religious practice is an important aspect of being a follower of Jesus. Practices such as the regular reading and meditating on Scripture. That's actually a really good thing to do. If you're struggling with your Bible reading, don't, don't delay until mid-semester exams are over and think, oh, fix that in the mid-year holiday break. Just fix it tomorrow. Just pick up your Bible and start reading. That's how you fix it. Don't come up with a massively fully colour-coded plan to get through the Bible in a whole year. People have already done that. You just download it off the internet, right? And then you can highlight it if you really want to. 
Now, if your Bible reading is really struggling, then here's an easy answer. Start reading the Bible. You might think, I don't have time. Well, that may be because you're just disorganized. We've all got exactly the same amount of time. You say, well, I don't know where to start. Okay, Mark chapter 1. If you can find Mark chapter 1, start there and read Mark's Gospel. If you get to the end of Mark's Gospel and don't know what to do next, send me a message. You'll probably know what response I'm going to give you. I think the first thing we need to remember is that religious practices are an important aspect of being a follower of Jesus. Regular reading and meditating on Scripture. Responding in prayer to what we read in the Word of God through repentance and thankfulness. The Scriptures will convict us by the Spirit to repent of various things and also to be thankful for God for various things. So how's your prayer life going? Thirdly, regular attendance at church and serving among other believers in all sorts of many and varied ways as the body of believers. Fourthly, expressions of love towards neighbour. This can be the people who you live with who aren't believers. This can be the people who you're in class with. This is the stranger who you stand on the train with. This is the stranger who's on the road with you when you drive. Like, expressions of love towards neighbour. And fifthly, good stewardship through generosity and giving. Something I think regularly and consistently comes up through the Scriptures. These five broad things as religious practice are important aspects of being a follower of Jesus. These things in and of themselves might not seem very impressive. Sitting reading your Bible for 15 minutes. Is that really a valuable thing to do? However, they are the hallmarks of one who has received Jesus as Lord. One who is known by Jesus and one who knows Jesus and is seeking to be obedient in relationship to him. The regular and continued practice week in, week out is actually a very powerful reminder both to ourselves about what God has done for us in Jesus but also they act as an encouragement to other people who are followers of Jesus that we might keep encouraging them to keep following Jesus. So as you look ahead in your diary and you think that week 8 and 9 is going to be a little bit pressure because you've got lots of mid-semester exams, and you see that one hour of eating small group, and you're already thinking, oh, I could skip that to study. My encouragement is why? Why do you think that one hour is less important than the other things you do in your week? Because you turning up to Bible study every week will keep reminding you of the great truths of Scripture, and that will be an encouragement to you that will far outlast any mark you get in that mid-semester exam. Your very presence at Bible study, when other people turn up, will be an encouragement to them. When they thought exactly the same thing that morning, oh, maybe I shouldn't turn up. And when they do, when they see you there, they will be encouraged that other Christians are gathered together to read the scriptures. See, these regular practices are a great reminder to us, but also a great encouragement and a reminder to others. So keep turning up. However, we do need to hear the warning here in terms of whether or not we've understood the place of religious practice in our lives, that if in your heart you consider that your religious practices are seeking to establish you in the faith or are somehow a means of your salvation, i.e. God's done most of the work but I need to sort of top it off by reading my Bible X number of hours a week, then I think you need to hear the words of Jesus. You need to remember that there is nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. You might think, well, I'm not quite sure if I know that. Well, I want to say, spend time reflecting on it in your own heart. Read the Word. Ask that God might convict you if this is you. 
If you think that your good works are trying to add to your salvation, and then in repentance and faith come before God and give him great thanks that in Jesus' death and resurrection all the work of securing your salvation has been done. And this, I take it, will act as a motivation for then undertaking things like reading your Bible and saying your prayers. Now, partly as a diagnostic, you might wonder whether or not these things are bringing you, these religious activities, are bringing you joy and comfort. Do they enrich your soul? Do they warm your heart? A little example of this, I won't talk about Anton too much, right? But a little example of this is when you go away on a Christian conference. Think like Church Weekend away or a camp that you went on at school or annual conference, for example, and you sort of come home and you, you feel like you're a bit buzzing, right? That's probably not the Holy Spirit, right? Just making you do this, right? No, that is, that's because you've been greatly encouraged over that one day or five days of sitting around the Word of God, submitting every aspect of life to it, encouraging one another, enjoying the fellowship of believers. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time we walk away from church we should have that feeling, because life is just not like that. But we ought to be growing in ourselves as we undertake these religious practices, great joy and comfort that the Word of God brings us. That it fills and enriches our soul. Whereas if we think these practices are burdensome and weighing us down, if we think that we must do these things, otherwise God will be displeased with me and maybe my salvation will be lost, Jesus says, I've done it already. I've done enough in my death and resurrection. So be freed from that burden. Do it willingly and joyfully. Second question, are you currently involved in some form of ministry at church or in the EU? If you're serving in some sort of recognised position, or you might be at some point in the future, or you might be aspiring to do so, how do you view your labours? Are they a joyous service to God in response to what he's done for you in Jesus? Or do you really sort of perceive them as a bit of a thankless task that you did because no one else volunteered. We do need to make sure here, as much as we've heard Jesus call on our life to become a servant and slave of others, that our service is undertaken from a position of security in relationship with Jesus, with full assurance of salvation. So what issues forth is a genuine willingness and joy in the privilege of serving. Now, over time, perhaps some of the ministries that you're involved with might bear some sort of gospel fruit. Maybe that more people start coming to youth group on a Friday night that you're leading. Maybe that even if the numbers don't grow, the people in youth group, you actually start to see them week to week growing in their love for Jesus. Now, if this is the case, can I encourage you to praise God and be cautious that you don't think too highly of your own efforts, lest you become proud and start boasting in them? We do need to be reminded here that God is the one who we're serving in this undertaking. God is the one who gives the growth, and God, therefore, is the one who is worthy of praise. Third question. There may be some of us in the room who are considering maybe one day working as a gospel worker. And if you're around the EU, sort of over your time at uni, at some point we'll be giving you encouragement to consider this through various programs that the EU runs. If that's you, then this passage ought to just give you pause for thought and consideration. See, if one day you're hopeful, perhaps, of becoming a gospel worker, that you will then have a great public ministry, that you will perform mighty deeds in the cause of the gospel, then please heed Jesus' warning. Many a ministry has been shipwrecked on the rocks of human ambition and success, on an ill-founded course to grow a ministry around a 
pastor rather than around Jesus himself. Please be very cautious as you walk this path of consideration that your desire for recognition and praise does not become the motivation that drives you. Rather, I take it, seek to grow in yourself, with God's help, a deep conviction of your own weaknesses and a deep, rich overflowing of grace that God has won for you in Jesus. And be prepared to serve now in ways that grow the body of Christ, yet are unnoticed and perhaps unrecognised. Are you willing to do that? For it is the Lord whom you're serving, not yourself and your own public recognition. We do need to remember that if you don't know Jesus, if you're not known by him, if your heart has not been captured by his love and his grace, and if in the case of considering becoming a gospel worker, if you're not willing to see that ministry isn't the only career choice, then no matter how impressive your ministry may appear with regard to Christian practice and all of your endeavours, you take it on the last day, the Lord of glory, when he appears, will say, I never knew you. May that not be the case for anyone here. May we continue to remember that success in the Christian life is being known by Jesus, knowing Jesus and doing the will of God. Now, given that we've been working through various teachings in Matthew's Gospel, I want to finish with this particular passage. And it's the book, first part of Matthew chapter 7. See, as we conclude our series on success and ambition, how should we finish? I think this is a fitting verse. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says this, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus goes on. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew again and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I suggest to you that if you want to be ambitious and successful in this life, then seek to be obedient to the words of Jesus. When the world demands change in action, wonders why the people in charge aren't listening or acting, remember that God listens, he's heard, and he's acted. He sent Jesus to die and rise again, radically reshaping and changing the world for all eternity. This was the world-changing event that was needed and has now taken place. Recognise that you are made in the image of God. The God who has created is in charge of all of the creation. And as someone who Christ came to die and rise for, you, friends, are a dearly loved child of God, intimately known, irresistibly attractive, deeply loved, unconditionally accepted, and of eternal significance. God loves you for who he has made you to be. So when the lies of the devil seek to entice you away from all that is good and pure and tempt you, to give in to your evil desires, remember Jesus and his words. When the storms of life come, and they will on all of us at some point, remember Jesus and his words, for he is our rock and salvation. 
And when the storms of life batter you and seek to topple you, remember Jesus, the firm foundation. When your desires and anxieties seek to overwhelm you, remember that God is your good and generous provider. That he offers refuge, strength, hope, and comfort. And in this security and from this position, we are free to live lives of grace, contributing to be, continuing to be transformed by God's Spirit into his likeness day by day, and offering the same hope of Jesus that we've received to others, that they too in the storms of life might seek shelter and refuge. Friends, if you want to be ambitious and successful in this life, then continue to be obedient to the words of Jesus. Someone's going to come. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.